Thanks so much for joining us for this special podcast that we have. My name is John, and I have the joy of being one of the pastors at Reality Church. And I just wanted to introduce you to what you're about to hear. Uh, on Sunday, the 18th, we were honored to host Francis Carlick, who is a residential school survivor and a second generation residential school survivor, and also a person who follows Jesus. So along with several other churches in Vancouver, we hosted her on this evening and she just so graciously and beautifully shared her story with us and then also had a Q&R. So uh, we're going to release it in two different parts. This first part that you're going to be hearing uh, now is the just her portion where she shared her story. And then we'll also release the, the Q&R that happened, which included her pastor and his wife, Cordy, Gordy and Kathleen as they just talked about their experience and answered questions together. Uh, the first thing that you'll hear on this recording is actually uh, Shell, who's the pastor of Pilgrim Church, introducing Francis, and then it will be followed by her sharing her story. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope that you're blessed uh, by this recording as much as we were in being in attendance on Sunday. I want to just give you a short introduction to who uh, we're going to hear from in just a moment. Uh, my name is Shell. I'm at, from Pilgrim Church. And um, I said some of these things to our congregation this morning. Francis was a guest there, uh, that this was an important day for our particular church. As far as I know, at the congregation I'm serving, we did not have, have never had anyone from First Nations and a First Nations believer uh, talk about their experiences regarding the evils done in the name of the state and the name of God. Uh, and so it was very, uh, I think, important for our church to begin to enter into wrestling with that. And I hope with that heart and that spirit, we're all here tonight as well. Um, the church I serve was an immigrant church. Uh, initially, it was the last of post-World War II Germans, uh, some who came as refugees from conquered lands, also lands that they had conquered, some of them, and um, both colonizers and some were refugees. And today, it's mostly second, third generation. We're, we're predominantly Asian and European background, people from every continent, like most churches in Vancouver, I would suspect. Even if we came here today, we, can, we benefit quite directly and therefore continue in some ways to be part of colonization and colonizer mindsets, whether we came yesterday or we came 300 years ago. And um, so I'm aware of that. As a new Canadian myself, I am challenged by the call to truth and reconciliation. I just want to name a little bit of that before uh, we have Francis come up. But the, um, in 2015, there were calls to actions, and some of them were issued to churches. In particular, under a call to action 60, we call upon leaders of church parties settlement to the settlement agreement and all other faiths, meaning those beyond those that would have necessarily been in that first, uh, in those initial uh, encounters, calling on us to engage and to work and to listen and to center the voices of those that were affected. And so uh, Article 61 or Challenge 61 also speaks to that. So I'm going to say no more about that, and I just want to introduce our, our guest this evening, and um, I was absolutely, the Spirit of God was moving powerfully this morning as she was sharing. I'll also give you a reminder, if you can silence your cell phones at this time, that would be lovely. Uh, thank you for whoever helped participate with that. Uh, no shame, there's silence, okay. <laughs> Wait, that's horrible, sorry, scratch that. You know what I mean, Okay. Jesus help him. All right. <clears throat> Francis Carlick uh, is from the Talton and Casca people from northern British Columbia. She was born in a small village called Lower Post alongside of the Layard River. Francis is a second-generation residential school survivor. Her mother went to the Jack Residential School in the 40s. Francis and her siblings attended the Lower Post Indian Residential School from 1957 to 1963, and then was transferred to the Coderre Residence, also a residential school in Whitehorse, Yukon. Francis is also a retired teacher, and that came out so powerfully this morning, and I'm sure you'll hear that this evening as well. Who taught elementary school on Vancouver's east side for 24 years. Francis has been a member of the Vancouver East Side Vineyard Church uh, since 1993. And she's going to share some of her story tonight. And so would you join me in welcoming our sister Frances as she comes to share this evening? 
Good evening, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. I just am so blessed to be here. And so blessed to have some of my church family here tonight, too. And thank you to all the people from Pilgrim Church this morning who came out to hear my story. It really blesses me and gives me strength every time I'm able to come out and tell my truth. So truth. The truth in the Bible says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I really believe that. My name, Francis, my English name, means free. And reconciliation? To reconcile means to restore friendly relations between, and I believe that's between Indigenous people and the rest of Canada. I think it's crucial in our time that we work towards that. We want peace to reign in our land. And that's why I share my story. I was born in northern British Columbia, right beside the Liard River. This is a picture of my, where my little log house stood, where I was born and raised and where I grew up. Next door was my great-grandmother, my grandfather, on the Taltan side, my great-grandmother from the Casca, and lots of aunties and uncles, and so many cousins to play with. And that was my early childhood memories of running around free, being able just to go and explore, and I never had a thought of being unsafe. Those are my childhood memories, and I'm so grateful that I had that time. My grandfather, Fred, Fred Carlick, came from the Kadokwa family from Shesley, B.C., which is very close to Telegraph Creek in the Stikine River area. And my grandfather was a man ahead of his time. He really did believe in hard work. He had the work ethic, which he passed on to every one of us. My grandfather also believed in education as a way to move forward. His view of education was freedom, freedom to do and explore and learn. But as you know from the history, things did not turn out that way for us. My mom grew up in Telegraph Creek. She had beautiful memories as a child there with her family and all of our relatives. And... Because I was the firstborn grandchild, my grandfather named me Sini in our language, which means only me, no one else like me. And I felt the sun did not set on anyone else but me. <laughs> and so I felt very special. And a few years ago, as I was talking with my sister, my sister said, my grandpa, and I looked at her and I was just amazed that my sister had the same feelings of that specialness, too. And so did my brother. That's what an amazing man our grandfather was. So I am really blessed, you know, like where I grew up, right by the Liard River. This is a picture of the Catholic church that was right next door to my family's house. And as you can see, it's a little log church. And they had Catholic priests in every one of the communities up north. So if you went to any community, you would find a Catholic church there. And um, next door is the... It, it, it's actually a um, residence where the priests lived. So my memories early on were for Father, you know, Father Dreen, Father Karen... Father Smith, different priests, you know, that there was a group of them that lived there. And they would do community, you know, work, coming around to talk to people and getting to know them. 
15 miles up the road, they had a Father Gilbo that was placed in Watson Lake and Liard. And Father Gilbo was very unique in the fact that he learned to speak the Casca language. And he learned to speak to our Casca people in their own language. But that was very rare. Um, and he spent many, many, many years there. So my earliest memory in the church was because I loved to sing and dance and I was a very creative child, when my mom would take me to church, I would get up and dance up and down the aisle and my mom would try to get me back. But because, you know, I just was just so full of love, I think, you know, I wanted to share my joy with everybody. And so I have early memories of that. This is a picture of my mom. She's uh, the taller one. Her brother Walter is in the middle, and her sister Hannah is on the other side. Now, in the, as World War II was breaking out, what the, the Catholics did was they gathered up all the children from Telegraph Creek, and they shipped them out by a big riverboat down to Wrangell, Alaska. And then from Wrangell, Alaska, they were shipped to Fraser Lake to the Jack Residential School, and some went to Charles Campbell Hospital, you know, if they were sick in Edmonton. So we have a connection through story of all of these places. And so what ended up happening was my mom and them's generation was the generation that the devastation came and happened. They never talked about anything as we were growing up. I heard bits and pieces from my mom, but you didn't have people coming around. And so many of our people in our communities were residential school survivors. And when they started having families of their own, no one talked about what happened. So it was buried. I guess they tried to forget it and just live their lives but the devastation was there. My mom was number one in that school. They were given numbers also. They weren't allowed to go to school full-time. They went from 9 to 12 o'clock. And then from 1 o'clock on, they did chores around the school and they did manual labor. And so that was the way that you know the government educated people. They were not allowed to go past grade 8. So the people from Telegraph Creek, because they were so far away from home, did not return home. They were in that school from 7, 8, 9 years, some of them. And so you can imagine the breakdown, because they were institutionalized, and that was the way they, were, they lived. The abuses in Lejac were horrendous. And I just touch on it a little bit. I don't dwell on it because God has healed me. But I bring it out just to give you a little taste of what life was like for my mom's generation. The beatings were daily. They were not allowed to speak their language. The breakdown of culture was, you know, really terrible. My uncle died in the residential school. They sent three boys into a diesel boiler to clean it with, without any protective gear. Life didn't mean anything to them. So they sent them into the boiler, and two of the boys died, and one of them was my uncle. And on his deathbed, the sister superior slapped him. And when he died that night, they said they heard her screaming all over that residential school. And all of the kids from the north, you know, felt like a little bit of justice had been served for what happened to my uncle. He was an amazing hockey player that never was given a chance in his lifetime. So he's buried on the Lejac Residential School, and we took mom back to have a visit at the graveside, and the grief that hit our family was just unreal. Because my mom never talked about it. And they didn't tell the truth to my mom when her brother died. 
They never told my mom what they did, that they sent them into a boiler. The other boys knew, but, you know, there was a code of silence in that school. You didn't converse. You were not allowed to talk about anything that happened. And it was enforced. And so they told my mom her brother died of meningitis. And they never even bothered to notify my grandfather that his son had died. So that, that was how they operated. You know, the breakdown between family members was really terrible. I think, you know, my mom and them had that level of grief. And all the North boys, because um, Gordy is familiar with them, he met some of them that were still alive in Lower Post, and we got to pray with them. Um, they were grief-stricken when they started to tell their stories. And I, I believe it was only prayer that got us through it, to hear the pain and the anger that came out. So I thank God that, you know, my mom started to open up more and more and to share her story. And I felt it was so important when I was teaching at Watson Lake to have my mom tell her story about residential school. So we started the work way back. And I'm just so grateful that I had that time. You know, it was so precious with my mom to learn about the history of what happened. The next picture is me. I I have the big bow in my hair. My brother is in the middle and my sister. Now, I didn't know that the very same thing that happened to my mom happened to us. I turned seven. My sister was six and my brother was five. And we were all taken away on the same day and put into the lower post residential school. And mom just didn't want to tell us that she was walking us down there and that we were not coming home with her. And the first day was so traumatic. I just could not even describe it to you. I ended up being 155. My sister was 163. And my brother, by some, uh, ended up 155 on the boys' side. Those numbers are ingrained in my brain today. I can still recall the faces of the girls and the numbers. So I just want to share two little incidents that stand out in my mind. The beatings were daily. I think they had a mandate to break us down. And when you see little kids being slapped around and their hair pulled and they're punched, it was just terrible. We did a lot of crying in those early years. And what happened to me was I was accused of telling a lie. And telling lies in my family was not something ever that my grandfather or my mom wanted to hear from us. They would correct us immediately if we told little fibs. So telling the truth was really important to my family. And I was accused falsely by this nun. And she called me up, and we would be publicly humiliated. So I would have been called up to the front here. And she started to slap me. But I had to say no because I didn't do it. I didn't take what she said I took. She slapped me 36 times that day. And by the 36th slap, I said, I did it because I was ready just to collapse. The girls in the lineup told me that this, I was slapped 36 times. They were counting as she was doing it. So that's the only reason I know that. And we have so many incidences of the abuse like that. That's why our people are still so angry because they feel justice was not served. The people who perpetrated these things were not called or charged. So a lot of them were nuns, lay people, and a lot of abusers came to our residential schools. I survived by the grace of God. And I, I credit an amazing woman 
in my life in the residential school with helping me through a very horrendous experience. This is Lower Post. It was built in 1950, and it housed over 300. Um, In the early years when I went there, the girls were crammed into that place. So there was very little space between the bunk beds. That's how filled it was. The top floor over here by the big chimney, that was the girls' side. And on the other side was the boys'. And we never mixed or mingled. When we lined up, it was boys only or girls only. The middle part on the top floor was where the nuns stayed. The second floor was where the administrator stayed and all the lay people that were working in the school. We were told never to go there on our own. Now, when the abuses were happening, I believed in justice as a seven-year-old. So I, I sneaked out of the lineup and went up those stairs, and I went to the administrator's door and knocked on it. Because I thought, if only he knows what's happening, maybe he can help us. But when he opened the door, his reaction to me shut me down and made me silent. He said, who do you think you are? Get back downstairs, and not in such nice language either. And I knew in that instant we were not getting any help. So I just went back down there and I got into a lot of trouble for going up there without permission. So after that, I never talked about anything. I just kept it to myself and kept silent and tried to disappear into the woodwork if I could. And that's what happened to so many of us. So those are the memories that I have from this building. I had nightmares for many years running to try to find a safe place, and I couldn't. And I'm so glad that I don't have those dreams anymore. My mom bought us beautiful Easter outfits. And I show this picture because Miss Jackie, my teacher, is there. And she came from Chicago, like I said, and she brought a whirlwind of hope to me as a little girl. We tap danced, we did ballet, we, she even encouraged us to Indian dance, and I felt so safe I brought my bearskin robe to school and danced with it. I created my own dances. That's how creative I was. My cousin reminded me, my dear cousin Fanny, said, you know, there were no snakes in our territory, and here I was doing the snake dance. <laughs> so... I'm grateful, but what ended up happening was sister, the sisters wanted other children in the picture, so she overruled Miss Jackie, and as you can see, I'm right at the very back, kind of obscured, so I didn't even get to celebrate my outfit, so there's my sister right in the front, smiling away, and the other two girls that were included in that picture, so... You know, that was a stolen moment that I want to share because those dresses were so beautiful. But that was rare. If any of us had clothes, it was immediately put away until the end of the year. So the fact that we even got to dress up and pose in front of the school was a miracle. I was a tap dancer, as you can see. I'm the one right in the front. My childhood friend is right in the middle, the smallest one. We're still best friends today. And I thank God for that because, you know, we had to form our little cliques in the school in order to survive. And I am so grateful. You know, she inspired me in so many ways. She went to university before me and inspired me to go. She finished grade 12 before me. And so I followed in her footsteps. So I'm grateful to my best friend as well. So my cousin and those other girls were all still alive, every one of us that tap danced. And they're in their communities, and they've done leadership work as well. So Now, I had a lifelong dream as a little girl. 
I wanted to be a teacher. And like I said in my story, Miss Jackie really inspired me. But what happened was I didn't believe I could do it. And I worked for Camosun College for four years as a teacher assistant. And the teachers encouraged me. They kept asking me, why don't you become a teacher? Why don't you get your degree? But I thought it was impossible. You know, um, now I just want to backtrack a little bit before I get to my grad and what happened. My husband bought me a Bible. Well, I went home to Lower Post. My brother had become a Christian. And my sister, our sister, was his first convert. And they were on fire for God. And when they came back to Lower Post to share their testimonies, everybody couldn't believe the change that had happened. So other people in the community became Christians. Lower Post was just moving like it was just unreal. And they, they wanted me so badly to come in and accept Jesus. So my response to them was, I was born a Roman Catholic and I'll die a Roman Catholic. But meanwhile, after I left residential school, I never went near the church ever again. And so my sister to this day calls me the staunch Catholic. (laughs) But that's another story. (laughs) So what happened was, I ended up going to UBC by the grace of God. I'm telling you, I left Victoria, my house on the reserve, kicking and screaming because I was comfortable living where I was. But God had to move me out of there, out of my comfort zone. And so 19, like, I I started going in 1989. I think it was about 92 that I met Kathleen Nagore, my dear friend from the vineyard, and she would always search for me in the classes, and she'd come and sit with me. And I would sit at the very back, trying not to attract any attention. And God gave us a friendship in those early years. And so on the day that I was graduating at the First Nations House of Learning, we were the first group of grads to graduate in that building, because it had just been completed. And so I was there in my button blanket and getting ready to, to have the big celebration. And Kathleen spotted me and she came over to me. And so she got to meet my family from up north because they all came down, my uncle Alfred and everybody. And my mom was there. And then the chief from Songhees, Laquaman in Victoria that I had married into also came over to celebrate my grad. And so it was a day of, to let you know what happened prior to that, this was really, truly a day of celebration. Because I hit rock bottom before I graduated. And I became, I I came to the end of my coping behaviors that I had survived with all those years. And I hit rock bottom, and I just fell apart. I could not see myself as a successful person because we had so many mixed messages in our life, and the racism was real. And I'm telling you, I I don't ever wish that on anyone. And what happened to me was when my family came and... My son's youth pastor from the Baptist Church on West 10th here in Vancouver helped me and found me a prayer partner. She was a nurse that drank on the downtown east side, and she accepted Jesus and changed her whole life. So she understood the pain from trauma and addiction. Her husband had been a former drug addict, and he used to go to the hills of Mexico every year and get his drugs. And he went one year to go get his drugs. And here, his drug dealers became born-again believers. They said, we have something better. We have Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) So their lives were transformed. And they helped me in my darkest moments. And then my mom and my whole family came from the north. And then I felt, I can do this. I can become that teacher I always dreamed about. And I ordered a button blanket from this uh, Haida man. And he made me a praying mantle in the front. 
and he put a wolf on it. And I broke with protocol on that because I honored my grandfather on that blanket. He came from the wolf clan, from the Taotan people. My great-grandmother in the north, we follow the matrilineal line. So she was a crow. There's only two clans in our territory. And so I wore that wolf blanket. I even got a drum made with a wolf on it. And when I walked across the podium, I knew that I had broken patterns for my family. I was the first university graduate. And my hope and prayer was that there would be more of my family that would follow. And it was such a special day, so unbelievable. I felt like I had climbed a mountain. I ended up teaching on the east side, and the teachers were on strike in 1993. So I moved off campus and I moved to the east side, and my dear friend and I were prayer walking around the neighborhood one day. And my friend, because she loved the Lord so much, she was obedient to him. And we were walking around and she banged on the door at Grandview Quinnacue Elementary School. And only the custodian was there at work that day. And he opened the door and I hid behind Kathleen because I didn't want to be noticed. And she said, oh, we're just prayer walking around the neighborhood. We believe God's going to open the door for Francis to teach here. <laughs> so I got a job interview in Victoria. So I was at my job interview. And the phone rang as the principal wanted to introduce me to all his staff. He wanted to hire me on the spot. And when the phone rang, it was the Vancouver School Board who had tracked me down in the midst of my interview, and they hired me for Grandview Quinnacue. Oh, my goodness. I knew that the prayer that my friend had prayed, her boldness really, you know, the Lord opened that door for me. I ended up teaching there for five years. So my friendship with them was cemented that day because I really believed that when she prayed for me and God opened that door, you know, there was no turning back. So I am so grateful for our time together. We really did believe in reconciliation. And we went on a march with a man named Bill Chu who worked with the Lil Wat people. And we supported that group because there is a very strong history of the Chinese community with our indigenous people and also intermarriage. And that was the stories that we were learning about at that time. And I really believe it, you know, that reconciliation for me at that point was so important. So we went on the marches and we supported that. And that was before we even heard about any talk of reconciliation. So I'm grateful for that time. So there's my friend Kathleen and I. In 2012, we went on a march. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, Bernice King, was here as the main speaker. And we, all the churches came and supported that march that year. So there was over 70,000 people that went. And I had just come back from up north from the Lower Post Residential School gathering, where they gathered us all back as part of the healing and they welcomed us back home. And so I made my pink regalia with help from the community, and I was so proud of it. And of course, I had this lady was selling roses that she made, handmade roses, and she did embroidery on it. So that's on it. I wanted to put the Holy Spirit on my blanket, but, you know, I was reminded by the rest of the people making regalia that I couldn't do that because it had to be a crow. And I didn't quite agree with it, but I put it on the, on the vest. <laughs> so, as you can see, my favorite healing color, God gave me the color pink. And so everything was pink that day that we went on the march. <laughs> so I'm grateful for all the support I had from my church over the years. They have become like my family. They've been with me through thick and thin They've seen my dark side. They've seen me when I've been 
hesitant to go to church, but they always coaxed me back. And so as part of my healing, I stayed with the church, even though I wanted to leave many times because of my own stuff. You know, my life was hard, and I had to work through a lot of stuff. And I got as much therapy as I could get to deal with what happened to me. And I'm grateful for every one of it. Father Michel was our administrator in Kudair Residence. So you can imagine all these unruly indigenous teenagers that he ended up with. He was a new priest, and the rebellion that we had. All of a sudden, we started to answer back. We started to say no. I don't want to go to church 6 o'clock every morning, which is what we had to do every single morning. And so things started to happen where we were starting to protest because we were hearing about all the protests in the 1960s. So we started to protest, and we started to say, no, we don't want this. Prior to Father Michel coming, we had an order in Coderre Residence that was very strict. And so I loved to laugh, and every time I laughed, the whole 300 boys and girls would be punished because they would make an announcement over the PA. Francis Carlick laughed, everyone on bread and water. So that was how they tried to keep us down. So we protested that year, and we came back the following September, and we had Father Michaud and a different group of people to supervise us. That was the first time we ever saw a change happen, that we had our voices heard. So I'm just, you know, one of the supervisors, we called her Mamie Legree from Uncle Tom's Cabin. We were all familiar with that book about slavery. And uh, there was a write-up in the paper a few years ago. Someone sent it to me from the Yukon, and they talked about... um, Mamie Legree, you know, remembering some of the trauma from the people. It didn't come from me, but it came from other people. So Father Misha was one of our good memories. He was as fair as he could be under the circumstances. So there's a, quite a few of us that still keep in touch with him. He's retired now, and he lives in, uh, you know, the Oblate's home. But he's a rarity also, because there were just too many bad memories of so many of them. So I share that because, you know, I forgave the Catholic Church in the 1970s. And I said in my heart, I'm no longer going to hold grudges. You know, I understood that ritual was important for some people. Many in our community still go to the Catholic Church. So I had to be mindful of that. So in 1994, we started to plan. I invited the vineyard to come up north. I wanted them to meet my people. And I felt that it was so important to break down barriers. Now, when I started going to the vineyard, I heard electric guitars. Everybody was wearing blue jeans, which we never saw in the Catholic Church. And there was just a freedom to worship God. And I was so touched by that. And the reason I invited them up north was I wanted my people to have a taste of what that could be like, to worship God, you know, and enjoy church. In our language, when we say good news, we say sogonia. The gospel is good news. And I understood that when I first met Gordy because of the message that he had for us, that it was time to leave Egypt, because Egypt represents bondage. And so I wanted my people to leave Egypt. I wanted them to hear the gospel, the good news, Sogania. So we prepared and got ready. And my husband passed away in February of 1995, and I was plunged into grief because my husband was also a residential school survivor. He went to Cooper Island, and he went to Mission Residential School. 
And those are horrendous stories also. So I had that grieving time, and the church was there with me every step of the way. And I was able to go back to work after six weeks and um, go back to teaching. And so what happened was we were just getting ready to go on our mission to Lower Post, and my niece got killed up north in a car accident. A logging truck slammed into her. But we knew we had to go in the midst of this grief because all of Lower Post was grieving. It was such a shock. And we got there, and we we just prayed up a storm. And we had service right in the middle of the village, in outside and then in the little log church, not the Catholic one, but the other log church that's in our community. And so many people came out. And I was just amazed. They want, they were so hungry for God. And they wanted to hear more. And I just really believe that God brought the vineyard for that time period and that friendship bond started. And so we had healing circles. I brought my drum and taught people how to get up and, you know, do a dance, friendship dance. And they built the playground, the first in the early years. And all the kids, you know, were just so happy to have their playground. And so we all posed. My sister is in the uh, pink shirt, red kind of color, red shirt. And all of our people, we all posed there. So many of the children in Lower Post and Watson Lake came. And we got baptized in the Liard River, me and my oldest son, who traveled up north with us. And... Um, so many of the kids got baptized at the same time. And that's what really amazed me. You don't see it, you know, as things are happening until you have a time to reflect back. And the kids were there every moment, and they heard the word. So it dropped into their spirits. And what was a, such a blessing was someone got a moose, and we cooked the moose head by mom's house at the campfire, And then I really prepped the people because I wanted them to understand that our moose is vegetarian and it's very healthy to eat. (laughs) And so we had a big feast and we had people walking around eating big moose ribs out to here. (laughs) But I didn't want anyone to snub our food. So I did a lot of preparation with our church before that happened. And we... Whether they liked it or not, they ate moose. So, <laughs> and so there, there's the evidence. <laughs> and it was just so beautiful. You know, the, the church would bring food up and we'd have wiener roasts and roast marshmallows. We did a lot of things in those early years. And they're just so special memories. And what ended up happening was many of those young people that got baptized... They're now the leaders at home. And my brother was, like I said, was the first, you know, early pastor in our community. And he baptized with Gordy, came up and supported him. And my mom was there, my sister was there. So it was just so beautiful to have all our family, my uncle Alfred and all his family, and so beautiful to gather like that. And I believe that was reconciliation in action. And there I was with my mom cutting moose meat that day as we prepared for the feast. And that was something that Gordy talked about. He said, Jesus wants you to come to his banquet table. Your moose meat is going to be on it. And he named all our foods. That just blew me away because prior to that in the church, I never ever heard our food up on any table, let alone the Lord's banquet table. That stayed with me. It's such a precious memory that I don't ever want to forget. When my mom went to heaven, I believe mom went to the banquet table and ate moose meat and all the things that we love. 
I went home. The church paid my way home for the demolition of the residential school in 2021. And I'm sitting there with my sister and my relatives. The young people speak fluent Kaska. That's my uh, first cousin's daughter there. They've learned the language, and I'm just amazed by the young people that are, that are being raised up to be leaders today. They speak the language fluently in many places. And God is raising up a new generation of leaders that don't have the same baggage that we do. And I have hope when I see that. And so I gathered with our people, but then we got, I call it an attack, because my sister's granddaughter got COVID, and she had was two weeks in quarantine. And she came down two days before her quarantine was finished. And they put all, us all into quarantine. So by rights, my cousin and her daughter were not even supposed to be in that area with us. But she, they just said, no, we're coming. And a lot of people came in and broke that protocol, <laughs> you know. But we, had, we did not have COVID. But just as a precaution for the community, we stayed separate. So many of the survivors came back that year. And we had a burning ceremony. Everybody got a piece of wood to burn in the fire to release the residential school memories because the last part of that residential school was coming down. And so I burned my number 155. There was the people all line, lining up to go and burn in the fire. And so we had to line up to do it. And so many burnt things, you know, memories that they wanted to get rid of, and they put it in the fire. I burnt for a few people, like my best friend who wasn't able to make it, and other people, and threw their numbers in the fire for them. And I, I prayed as I got to that fire, and I said, Lord, I want more healing. I want you to show me what I can do better in my life. And I threw it in the fire. And... Um, Every time I go home to Lower Post, I have more healing. So there's the last part of that school that came down. So they symbolically just, you know, touched it with the machines, but it didn't come down until after I left Lower Post, and they burnt it. And uh, in other places where they had residential schools, they demolished them. The anger and the rage that came out, those buildings were no longer standing when they were finished. So we had to use this as our band office. We had no choice. But now there's a new complex going up there. That's prayer, too, because we have been faithful to pray for lower posts. And they're getting such an amazing complex there. And uh, my sister wants me to come home to celebrate that. So that building there is no longer there. So there I am again. That's our healing circle area. And when Gordy and them come up and we do service, we do it in there now. And uh, we eat there and feed people. So we have our gatherings there. And it's been a real blessing to be able to do that. Now, I'm so grateful to Gordy for lobbying on my behalf. And um, he wrote and phoned and called people because he wanted you know, me to be on the delegation that was traveling to Rome. He felt it was really important. And November 11th last year, the Assembly of First Nations phoned Gordy and said that they would take me. And I just fell over. I was so... I knew it was a miracle. We knew it was a miracle. And so I ended up going with the delegation, and we traveled over to Rome, and I traveled with the Squamish people, the people from Chehalis and Chiam and Musqueam. And we became like a little family there. But I met people from all across Canada, and my best friend is a superintendent from Regina School District, the Catholic School District. 
And that was an eye-opener for me about how many of our Indigenous people have remained Catholic and are very strong in the church. So we met the Pope April 1st, and he apologized. And I was there, and I was wearing this outfit. Roses, God gave me roses in 1998 as part of my healing, and the color pink. And so I celebrated by putting this outfit on at the last minute when I went to see the Pope. And I only made the connection after I got back. Now, the next picture shows uh, our drummers in Assisi and the Inuit people and the Cree people and other people got up and shared in the Mass. And they drum and sang. And it was just so beautiful to hear that drumming in the cathedral. I wish they had, you know, did that at St. Peter's Basilica or something because I think it really, really would have touched more people. But the fact that we did it in Assisi was a blessing. And then I found out St. Francis also loved roses. That was part of his healing. And so the connection to St. Francis and me was just so beautiful. I'm so grateful to Gordy in the vineyard for, you know, lobbying on my behalf. I would never have been able to go without their support. And there's my welcome back. And here the Coast Salish people were at the airport at 1 a.m. in the morning because our plane was delayed, and they welcomed us back. And Drummond sang and just blew me away. Such a beautiful welcome to hear that the drums all over that airport. And there was Gordy from the church waiting for me to give me a ride home. So I'd like Gordy and Kathleen to stand up. Uh, this has been our journey too, and part of reconciliation. And because of their love and their support and their friendship, reconciliation really is true for me. So that is my story. God kept me throughout all those, those years. I had the hand of God upon my life, and I just am so grateful. I want you to know, every day that I wake up, I thank God. I continue to pray for my people in Lower Post because I don't want them to fall by the wayside. They confess with their mouth that they feel the hand of God upon our community up there. They still have their troubles. Alcohol still remains an issue. Drugs. But our people are dealing with it the best that they can. And they take the youth on the land. And that's, that is our hope for the future. More healing to happen. So we're still waiting for our church to go back and have a visit. We haven't been able to do that because of COVID, so that is going to be a future visit. So again, I want to thank you. God bless you all, and thank you for listening to me.